0: and welcome to Camp Adulthood and the Resident Youth. I am Maddie Yerge, the Resident Youth.
1: And I'm Shay Keats, Camp Adulthood. And today we have with us a dear friend of mine, Sarah Todd, who will introduce herself a little more in depth later, but wanted to let our listeners know that she is here uh, right now. Hello. (laughs) Yay. So Maddie, should we uh, jump right
0: into the campfire portion? Yes, we recently rebranded our Hot Topic section as Campfire because we're going full in on the camp puns with this podcast, so pretty excited about that. Would you like to go with the first Hot Topic or would you like me to present mine?
1: Um, I think you should present yours because mine
0: is more of a camp adulthood moment. Great. so. So my Hot Topic is this week I learned that in my home state of Michigan, Kid Rock is running for Senate. I don't know if we all heard about this.
1: Yes, yes, Kid Rock. Um, I felt like I should have more opinions and care more, but But he can't be worse than the people we already have in there, so...
0: You're just kind of over it.
1: I'm over it. I'm over it.
2: I just thought, oh no, he's definitely going to win. Because I feel like if there's one thing that we've learned from our last election, it's that people who are not qualified win elections mm-hmm. yeah,
0: so, no yeah. actual people are gonna vote for him yeah. yeah
1: and who is he running against do you know anything about that his opponent?
0: I think it's too early I don't know I think he just has a website now that says Kid Rock for Senate so I think it's very up in the air is
1: I'm gonna ask something that's gonna sound mean but I don't really know that much about Kid Rock except didn't he have some kind of mental deficiency from like years of stained alcohol and drug abuse?
0: I don't, I don't. know. I that I had might some be. I kind of like breakdown. that was the in the hospital. Oh, An I don't know. High
1: brain Aneurysm. Something along those lines.
0: You might think be thinking of like Tommy Lee Jones or something
1: like I'm that. I'm not thinking what is his of name? Tommy Lee Jones. He is old.
0: No, not not Tommy <laughs> Lee Jones. Who's the guy that was in? Now I'm really showing my age. He's like a Tommy Lee. He was like also married to Pamela Anderson. Oh, because Kid Rock was married to Pamela Anderson.
2: Oh. If I had you to know list, I'm talking about? N- no. no. I mean,
1: if I had to list all the things that I it's knew about me.
2: Kid Rock, it would be... Uh, his name is Kid Rock. Yeah. Uh,
1: <laughs> I think, about Michigan sometimes. I, th- yeah, I think, I think he wears of a like, hat
2: he's frequently. Yeah, a hometown yeah.
1: hero type of guy. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, I swear there was some kind of thing where he had a brain aneurysm and it was like very sad it was when he had a reality I, apparently i know a lot about kid rock oh had, like,
0: you're thinking of can... brett michaels that's who you're yes! thinking of
1: Bret, but they're not the same person <laughs> no if Bret
0: michaels <laughs> brett michaels was running Michael? for senate in michigan i would absolutely vote really sure for
1: who brett michaels is
0: brett michaels is every rose has its thorn oh you know that song i think i thought that that was like rock meat of meat love loaf. and rock of love oh. okay, i see. Rock. Wow. We're now realizing the six degrees of separation with Kid Rock gets us <laughs> <Yeah>. to meatloaf. Kid Rock to meatloaf. Well, I mean,
1: as I think I've confessed here before, I, for many years, still really don't know the difference between Billy Joel and Elton John, so I'm not the person to
0: <laughs> about right. um, ask about any of this. Cool. So. Well, yeah, that was my Excellent. hot topic. I just yeah. wanted to announce to the world, people that maybe aren't from Michigan that hadn't heard that Kid Rock is running for Senate. so there we go Yeah. will you be voting for Kid Rock no I'm a New York voter oh, I changed so good. I can vote in the mayoral election yeah that's important yeah. are you do you vote here in New York or do you have a yes
2: I switched um, so I'm from Ohio so Ooh. for a long time I kept my Ohio that's driver's cool. license and so that I could still vote yeah swing um, state yeah because it's, so, it's such an important swing yeah. state but um, I also wanted to be involved in the local New York election yeah. so yeah. I switched recently
0: Awesome. Makes sense. Awesome.
1: Voting in New York is very exciting. I mean, I've never voted anywhere else, so I shouldn't really say that it's more exciting, but I really feel like going to the polls yeah. here is, like, invigorating. And I don't know, I felt this past year going and, like, voting for Hillary, and I live in Chelsea, which is primarily a gay neighborhood, and everybody was... I mean, the next day, everyone was very sad, but the whole thrill and the pageantry of voting was really yeah.
2: exciting. Yeah. So. I liked the vibe on the voting day. Yeah, I felt it very, very hopeful. Good. Yeah, I've never
0: hopeful. voted in person because I turned 18 when I was in college and I got an absentee ballot for the Romney Obama oh. election and then I've always voted absentee in Michigan until
1: I this, this dates me a little bit but the first election I guess I could vote in what the presidential election was John Kerry and George Bush I guess yeah. George Bush mm-hmm. the second um and I was studying abroad in Spain and I bed my absentee ballot and he's still lost and <laughs> I feel like John Kerry owes me 53 euros was very expensive, and I did not have 53 euros to be spent Yeah, that. you really should invoice him. I should. So I yeah. really should. Wow.
0: So. Alright, well shall we move on to our millennial moment of the week? Yeah. Would you
1: like to start, Shay? I would like to go first. So my millennial moment of the week is that I was hanging out with a friend and her 16-month-old baby, and our plan for the day was to split a bottle of champagne and then take the baby to Kidville. Kidville is an indoor amusement not an amusement park, but, like, play area with gym mats and jumping trampolines and all kinds of stuff. And I just was like, here we are, responsible adults, being very responsible caregivers, and just everybody in that Kidville looked like they needed, like, four glasses of wine.
0: Aww, um, everyone
1: was so stressed. Everyone was so stressed. And I was Aww. like, I feel good because we had, you know, glass and a half of champagne each before we came. So, but I thought, like... You know, when you're a kid, and you think about what it's like to be a parent. You never think you're going to be like, "Yes, I'm going to eat a taco and have champagne." That your mom
0: is going to be stressed out. a yeah. glass of wine Need at Kidville. Glass of wine at Kidville. Yeah. yeah. So I
1: thought that was very interesting. And that is
0: excellent. honey
1: Yeah.
0: So oh. what's your millennial moment, or do we have? Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna use my my time to share a submission that we got on the website, and I'm also going to take this time because we usually do it at the end to plug at the beginning all of our social media. And website. So we got the submission that I'm about to read um, from hello at campadulthood.com. So if you want to share a millennial moment or any sort of story, you can email us there and you can also connect with us on Twitter and Instagram at camp underscore adulthood. So that's our little plug. So let me read this Millennial Moments. So this is from producer Jenny and she wrote in I had a very millennial moment today when I transferred most of my savings into an investment account. I'm trying to save as much money as I can. Co- as possible so i can come back to new york when i finish my time in france and the investment account i have has much better returns than my savings that i've had since middle school i also committed minor time theft at work at the start I my workout by doing it. I'm also committing time theft now by writing this. But I felt very grown up, even if it's not the most financially responsible thing to do. XOXO, producer Jenny.
1: Ooh, I have several comments on this. The first is, who here has a 401k or IRA or other responsible retirement savings? I do. I do. I also do. Oh,
0: excellent! Everyone here, wow.
1: I've only had mine for like a year, and I have a very sad, low amount of money in it, because I'm not, my former company didn't do any kind of matching, but I was very proud that I set it up, and how easy it was to set up, and I remember talking to other, especially because I worked in a creative industry for a long time, and talking to other people my age who were like, I don't have one, and I have no intention of setting one up, even though they were making very good money, and um, why do you think so many millennials are kind of afraid of that or find it to be, like, you know, this difficult thing when really you just go online, fill out a form that's, like, one page long and put in, like, $100.
2: Yeah. Well, I think part of it is, like, I've noticed that, so I've been in, um, I'm making more money now than I ever have before, but the cost of living is also higher because I live in New York. Yeah. So when I lived in the Berkshires, yeah. I made. You lived
0: in the Berkshires? I did. It's so
2: cool. Yeah. Oh, um, what a so. Party. Uh, And I love them. But when I lived there, I made a lot less money, but my cost of living was very low. And I was, like, much more scrupulous about saving and, uh, you know, like, I had money in my savings account. I was uh, putting the most money that I ever have toward, like, my 401K and stuff. I was paying down my student loans. And I think it's sort of, like, the more cash-strapped you are psychologically, like, the less you feel like you even have room to worry about, Mm -hmm. like saving for retirement, because you're like, I'm worrying right now about whether or not I can make rent, you know? So I feel like that's part of it, probably, is, like, if there are people living in New York, I think that a lot yes. of people just... It's
0: the ease, too, yeah. like, for young people especially, because, like, at my company, I work at a bank, and, like, on day one, they were like, you just click go. Like, at work, I didn't have to go to a special website, and they do 401k matching and stuff, so it was literally so easy. Yeah. yeah. And it was like, you really had to choose not to do it almost like doing it was the default so yeah I I think if you don't have that option it's really hard with a
1: friend of mine at work and he was just so oblivious about even how to do it and he was like amazed that I had set one up and I was like
0: I know who she's talking about and I'm like eye roll
1: eye roll huge eye roll because he's like I don't know a year or two older than me and he just was like well I can't even believe you do that and I was like dude like your retirement is actually not that far off. Like, if you're 35, your retirement is 30 years. Like, yeah. you want to have something because you're not going to have Social Security. So... Truth. Better get something in the bank. And I'm saying this literally, I have $500 in my IRA, so I shouldn't be like, I'm so great. No,
2: but that's good. That's no, I, nothing. I, the that's whole awesome. point is to start. Yeah. yeah. Exactly.
0: So... <laughs> I think the other interesting part of Jenny's email was the time theft at work thing. Yes.
1: That's what I was thinking. I'm,
0: like, kind of obsessed about because it wasn't a concept that I had thought about until I read Jenny's email. And I'm starting to realize that it's something that people are really anxious about, especially people that, like, I know where producer Jenny works and she works at a startup and she's paid hourly. Whereas, like, I work at a, a much older company and I'm salaried. And I'm like, is that the dynamic that people are paid hourly or more anxious about the time theft not that producer jenny was necessarily anxious about it but just like in general the concept of time theft it's like i do so much random stuff at work i'm googling things you know what i mean like is that a thing that people worry about i don't think they should yeah Yeah. what were you gonna say i I
1: think it's like it depends also where you are in your career. I mean, I remember my first real like big girl job. I was working in advertising and very much like, ever- and I had an office where my back, like my computer faced the wall. So like no one could see what I was doing, but if I did anything, and this is just also my type a guilt ridden Catholic school girl personality. Like I would feel so guilty, but I also yeah, think sometimes- that's, that's the
0: guilt. Yeah. yeah.
1: But like you're a better worker if you could like take a mental break. Um, but I think, one problem, and I see this a lot with my younger millennial staff, is they just don't know where to draw the line. Like It's one thing, again, especially when you're working with creative people, it's one thing to be like they go on Instagram once an hour to like clear their brain and get some inspiration for five minutes. That's fine. But when they're texting constantly all day, that's where it becomes an issue. But I also feel like if you're getting your work done and you're doing your work well, especially if you're a salaried employee, whether it takes you an hour to do that work or, you know, six hours to do that work, that's your prerogative. And if your manager has a problem with that, that's their responsibility to be like, you're doing great work, but I see it's only taking you a little bit of time. How can we, you know, even make things more challenging for you? And then also I think it's the responsibility of the, the worker to say like, I'm bored. I have an hour of work. If they want to get ahead, then they should also be being proactive in that way. So that's what I would say.
0: I like that. Well, yeah. good.
1: Sarah, what do you think as someone who works as a writer? So obviously you're doing a lot of research and you're, yeah, you know, I mean, you kind of need that time.
2: So I, yeah, I think that it's, it's an alien concept to me because it all feeds in. And also because I think that this isn't unique to my job. I think a lot of people, especially the millennials, uh, have jobs where, like, your job never totally ends, like, I, yeah, with the technology, you're always checking email, and so that means that, like, uh, certainly at my job, and I think for a lot of people, like, they're just looking at, like, getting your work done, you know, but it doesn't matter to them, like, if I need to, like, and, you know, we have people, if they need to go pick up their kids from school, that's fine, and, like, if that happens at noon, nobody's worried about it, yeah, um, if like uh you know if I need to like run an run an errand because that's like the the best time for me to do it it's mm-hmm. fine because I'm also maybe going to be working like until ten o'clock that night you know yeah so I think that it depends a lot on like what kind of job you have but yeah. I think uh the I think the best way for employers to think about employees' jobs is to think about like. Just what matters most is Mm -hmm. the quality of the work that is getting done and not, like, you know, how you're... If you take time to write an email or set up a 401k, like, it's crazy to me that you would feel guilty about that. Yeah. That's something that I would never feel guilty about. Exactly.
1: And I think it's really interesting, I was talking with another coworker of mine who um, is lovely, but she's, you know, very much Gen X. She's um, just recently turned 50, and she said to me, she was like, well, I never check work email after hours or on the weekends. And I was, and that's totally fine in our industry. You know, my former job, like we don't, there are no emergencies. It's not expected. It is not expected. And there are no emergencies, but I would always be checking my email and have it on my phone. And I just remember being like, just very blown away by that. And that she's very, super successful and really hard worker and, you know, but she's like, I work when I'm at work, and when I'm at home, I'm at home. Right. So, I, so. Guess, I
2: guess it's different styles, too. Like, if you have the kind of job or if you're the kind of person where you want to just work for seven hours plus your one-hour lunch break, and then you go home, like, then, sure, maybe yeah. maybe you don't take care of your other stuff during the day because you have this really, like, fixed period of time where yeah. you're at work. But I think a lot of the reality is that that's not how a lot of people work and live. Mm-hmm. And so things are necessarily going to get intermixed sometimes. Exactly. But yeah.
1: Exactly. All right. So um, let's have Sarah introduce herself a little bit more. So if you can tell us, uh, Sarah, where you're from, uh, so where you grew up, uh, what year you were born. Um, and a little bit about where you work, um, what you do now, maybe where you went to college, just kind of a brief, um, sure.
2: uh, biographical yeah. background. Um, I should say I'm like really bad at like this, like That's uh, okay. I panic I like, when people yeah. ask me, like tell you me a little bit about the, yourself. Yeah. I'm like, Oh God, I don't, so I may mean, need like help. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. Uh, but, um, I'm Sarah. I was born in 1983 and uh, so I'm 34 now. I'm super um,
1: excited because Sarah's our first guest, who like me is in her 30s. So I'm very, very excited. Yay.
2: Yes, 30s are great. Everyone who's yeah. not there yet, you have 30, something to look forward and to. Thriving. Oh, God. <laughs> <did> i know? <laughs> I to, uh... Um, and I grew up in Sugar and Falls, Ohio, which is a Small town near Cleveland has a beautiful waterfall. Has a beautiful oh, waterfall.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Playful. Um, Bill Watterson, the creator of Calvin and Hobbes, is from there originally.
1: Fun fact, Fun. I did not know that. Yes,
2: our proudest homegrown star. Yeah. Um. And oh, so uh, a little bit like this is just basically my chronological life. Um. I went to boarding school when I was sixteen at Interlochen <gasps> in Michigan. Interlochen, yeah. yeah. Which is an arts boarding school. Mm -hmm. And I went to college out in California at Pomona College, which is a small liberal arts school. And uh, what else do I need to talk about? Where
1: where do you work now? Now,
2: yes. yes, now I work at Court's which is an online publication that is owned by Atlantic Media, so we're the Atlantic sister site. Um, The focus is on the global economy, and that's sort of broadly defined. So, um, you know, we do business and finance and tech and science. We also do culture, but it's all through um, an international lens with a goal of understanding um, sort of how... um, things, how people and things are moving across borders in different ways, I guess is the
1: And jingle. your specific job there, you're a writer, editor? Yes. Okay.
2: Uh, so my job there, um, I'm a deputy editor of the ideas section, which so is cool. our section um, that works primarily with outside writers, although not exclusively. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a combination. Uh, we do commentaries, which might be, um, you know, a professor uh, using their area of research to help us understand something that's in the news. We do uh, personal essays that um, kind of like take a personal experience. Um, a recent one was about an ultra marathon runner who's also a professor in this case, that's who cool. talks about um, how he used the science of self control to help himself run these 100 mile marathons. Mm-hmm. Um, And then I write as well. Um, So I both uh, edit and commission pieces and then write in addition to that.
0: Awesome, yay. I was hoping, kind of going into the introduction bit, I read in one of your pieces that you had a PhD in chemistry, is that correct? No? Maybe it was someone you were writing about not or a me. piece you edited, not <laughs> <laughs> I you. Like,
1: I that that would be like Sarah. That would be really I cool of
0: this. me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I do not.
2: Um that might be Oksha. Yeah.
0: Um, it was in a piece in quartz. Yeah. That I think you either wrote or you edited. Probably edited, and yeah. They were talking about making the jump from having a PhD to being a journalist. And I mm. thought that would be an interesting topic to talk about, kind of to start with the millennial experience and kind of untraditional career paths. Yeah. So I was hoping you could kind of talk about how you ended up at Quartz, maybe other oh, sure. experiences I mean, you've had. So I I can't talk about
2: the PhD in chemistry yeah. part because that is not me.
0: But good good. our research <laughs> skills here <laughs> at Canada, are <although> <laughs> top. Nine. This is what happens when I cut um, time. That yeah. for everyone. <laughs>
2: Uh, but I can talk about... I, I have had sort of an untraditional uh, path into journalism, so I can talk awesome. about that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, basically, my career arc was sort of... Um, when I graduated from college, I knew that I wanted to have a career that involved reading and writing. Like, I knew that that was what I really loved. But I didn't know what that was going to look like, necessarily. Yeah. Um, so... I first worked at Teach for America as a recruitment associate, which basically meant like I was working for this nonprofit. Um, And I did not, I knew that that wasn't what I wanted to do. So I started interning simultaneously at um, this alt weekly in New York City. Um, And that was free. I had just like, I emailed them out of the blue and I was like, hi, could I come in a couple times a week? And then I negotiated with my boss. So that I worked part time, still on uh, on salary at Teach for America, mm-hmm. and then also spent like two days a week working for free at this all weekly,
1: um, as everyone seems to do. Were yeah, in New York City at that this time. This is in New York. This yeah, is New York. Okay. yeah.
2: Um, it was the Brooklyn Rail. Um, is the name Very of it, cool. which is a really cool. It still yeah. exists. It's a really nice pub. Um, but so then uh so from there it actually like you know this was kind of a gamble but it actually worked out pretty well um so i applied to and wound up getting a job at a buddhist magazine called tricycle um yeah and that was um really great it's a quarterly magazine i really uh, love it um and it was a great job it had a tiny staff uh so when i joined it was just three people on the editorial side um which meant that like i got to do a lot of stuff um right away and even more like so in I was only there actually for a year but in that time I went from being editorial assistant to associate editor Mm -hmm. Um, and that was like I think that that really speaks to the advantages of like joining a small place in general where you can do a lot of stuff yeah Um, sure But so here's where my path gets like more uh, sort of like wavy and untraditional. So um, all of my friends at the time were going to grad school for different things. I had friends going to law school and to med school, um, to PhD programs. And it just kind of seemed to me like that was like what you do. So I was like, I guess I have to go to grad school too. What should I go for? And I thought that the thing that made sense was um, getting a PhD in English uh, lit. So um, I wound up uh, enrolling in an an MA program and, uh, you know, then eventually, like, joining this PhD program at the University of Oregon, Mm -hmm. Um, and it wasn't until my third year there that I was sort of like, wait, I don't think that I want to be a professor, (laughs) and I'm not totally sure what my game plan is here, Um, so I dropped out, and then... uh, is this? I don't know if it's interesting to hear, like, if you guys want to ask me questions. Yeah, I, yeah, let's get to where
1: yeah. you are now. But yeah, I know, like, I have lots of comments about the academia yeah. about my lifestyle because I've not the first time I've heard this
2: story. It's a fun one, so yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's <a good> one. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, this was like the most dramatic, uh, part of the story. So, basically, I was like, uh, I was 27 or 28 at this point, mm-hmm. um. And in a lot of ways, like, I was really happy because I had I, I had a really great community in grad school. I had, like, a really close group of friends. Um, and, like, you know, at that point I was getting paid, so it was like I had a, a job. Um, but I was sort of looking ahead and being like, I just don't think that I want, I don't really want to put myself in the academic job market. It sounded yeah. very hard and depressing. And I, like, felt like there was no guarantee at all that I was going to wind up with a job even at the end of it. Um, mm-hmm. And I also uh, really realized that even though I hadn't been in journalism for very long before, um, but I really, I had always known sort of that I wanted to be a, a writer, um, and I didn't like the way that I felt when I wrote Academic Writing, because I just felt like no one was reading it. And yes. Oh, my <laughs> God. Yeah. <laughs> so that's very interesting. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so um, that was, like, the most demoralizing. That. yeah um so uh so basically what i wound up doing was i couldn't uh you know i was financially supporting myself i couldn't just drop out of grad school and like have no job um, so uh, I just needed a job that would allow me to leave grad school and the one that I wound up getting was at an economic research institute in the Berkshires as we were talking about before nice. um, yes. yeah. so, uh, so I was editing economists there like editing their work oh, yeah. um, but I took it basically just to enable me to like figure out what I did want to do and how I was going to do it um, and I decided pretty quickly that what I wanted to do was go back into journalism. I loved the Buddhist magazine yeah. job, um, and it was also this was in the midst of the financial crisis at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, it was Which like is so fun to
1: get a job in the middle
2: of the financial <laughs> crisis. Really good times. Yeah, really um, good times. Yeah. Uh,
1: I feel,
2: yeah. But uh, but so but that was actually making me even more invested in journalism. Even as like you know magazines were shuttering, it was like actually a terrible time for journalism. Yeah. Um, but. Uh, I, just, I was reading so much journalism at the time mm-hmm. about, about what was happening to our country, yeah. and I just felt like this was like, you know, the, the thing that was calling me. Um, yeah. So I started freelancing while working at the Economic Research mm-hmm. Institute, so definitely holding down multiple jobs. And I also simultaneously um, co founded with one of my best friends from grad school a feminist pop culture blog. Um but so we, is we were, it still in. It's uh, it's it you can still find or? it online, okay. but um, you guys but don't. We don't it Yeah, okay. it's girls like giants. If anyone, oh wants cool. To look it up. Um, but uh, and we um, so we started, started. We took it really seriously. We were like you know um, running multiple articles a week, and we also got a kind of network of contributors going who are also regulars. Yeah. Um. So basically, uh, I just started. I think they say in journalism a lot, and I think it's true for a lot of professions, especially mm-hmm. for millennials, like. And um, you kind of have to do what you want to do for free, and then hopefully, eventually, somebody will pay you. To, yeah, yeah, pay yeah. you to do it. So I that's what been. we're yeah. trying
1: to yeah. do. Yeah, sweet blue apron money.
2: Yeah. So um, that was definitely like what what my philosophy was with Girls Like Giants, and then with the with the freelance journalism that I was doing, I was getting paid, but it obviously wasn't like I wasn't paying my bills mm-hmm. that way. Yeah. Um, uh, but eventually, it it did work out. Um, yeah, yeah. And at courts so I'm skipping a little bit. So then um, the next thing that I did was I, uh, so one of the places that I was contributing to, I'm just, I'm going through like the details here because I feel like it, for people who are interested in journalism, I feel like it can be useful yeah. to hear,
1: like all the mini yeah. steps, but you guys can cut this out. If it's no, no, part. this yeah. is great because I think a lot of, yeah. especially younger millennials really struggle with this because yeah. they're coming, especially if they do want to get into journalism. You know, we're, we're living in a time that's really incredible because there's so much content being created mm-hmm. and there's so much content to create. But if yeah. people think, like, you have to follow a specific path and it has to be really linear and you have to... If you don't have a certain type of editorial job or have published this much by this age that you're, you know... Just screwed. Yeah. 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 But it's not true. Like, yeah. it's not true. It definitely so, wasn't true for me. Yeah. Um,
2: so, yeah. So, basically, one of the places... Um, that I was writing for um, was called the Billfold, which is part of the All network of blogs. Um, the Billfold is like a—it's a site that talks about money, and um, again, like this happening, like in the midst of like the aftermath of the recession, it was really like a, they were getting all kinds of interesting stories. Mm-hmm. Um, but so from doing that, and then from working at the Economic Research Institute, um, and I started—I wound up like a. I convinced them that I should start, like, a blog um, myself Mm -hmm. there. So, like, you know, I started building a portfolio, and I was like, okay, I think that I have, like, a fair amount of stuff in this sort of, like... Economics, personal finance mm-hmm. realm. Let's see if I can get a full-time job in that area. And that wasn't necessarily, like, what my passion was. It was, like, more of a practical decision. I was, like, I have this... I was also doing all this other, like, pop culture writing, and I was writing about, like, local news, but, like, yeah. this seemed like the more practical thing to pursue. So, um, I... I wound up working for. Um, so I applied and, and got a job at a trade paper called American Banker that concentrates on um, the banking industry. Uh, when I first met you, Shay, yeah, I was still working for nice them. Yeah, yeah. 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 So I joined as a reporter, um, and then uh, and uh, so just again, like for context, for anybody who's thinking about like breaking into the journalism industry. So at that point, like I just kind of had like. I had a lot of clips that I could show them um, that were about, like, not banking in particular, but it was like a breaking news reporter It was, like, sort of an entry-level reporter mm-hmm. position. And they just kind of wanted to know, like, are you a good writer? Can you write fast? Um, do you have, like, a basic facility with numbers that will let you, you know, like, uh, not mess up terribly if yes. we ask you to write about earnings or yeah. whatever? And I had those things. And yeah. they were like, okay. Um, so. Uh, So I wound up working for them first as a reporter, then um, as the editor of their op-ed section. It was a a great place to work for. Um, And then after that, I wound up joining Quartz. So that brings us to the present. Here we are today.
1: Wonderful. Wonderful. Um, I think that, again, like I said, it's a really fascinating story, particularly for listeners who think that there is one way to reach these goals and and there's not. Um, I found it so interesting what that you started the PhD program and didn't finish. I, mean, yes. I did a master's at NYU with the goal of doing a PhD. I was not so lucky as to be admitted to any of the PhD programs I wanted to. But um, after that, I remember like being very grateful that I didn't because mm-hmm. I knew just academia right now is a complete mess. Like it's very difficult to get jobs. Yeah, um, you are going to be getting paid like ten thousand dollars a year to live in Alaska and teach. You know. <laughs> I don't even know. Right. The most obscure thing to freshmen or something. Yeah. And I have several friends, I mean, I have several friends who are finishing PhD programs and are very happy and are going to be super successful, but I also have several friends who started and and didn't make it through. And so I think it's really interesting to hear your story and to hear that you can do that and you had a really valuable experience in Oregon. Um, And it's not a failure to be like, you know what, this is not Right and I'm going to move on to the next next thing. Yeah,
2: totally. And one thing that I think about a lot with PhD programs is that I think that they make it really hard to step off. You're sort of like on a... not not a treadmill. What's the thing where like an assembly line oh, maybe? Yes, yeah. yeah. Um where it's really challenging to get off because it's sort of like, okay, great. You've passed your um preliminary exams. Now it's time for you to do your orals. Great. Okay. You've passed your orals. Now it's time to write your proposal Sounds for very what your prescribed. dissertation. Yeah. yeah. Um and I think that makes it really hard to hop off. So like um one thing that I would just say in my experience is that like don't feel like just because you've started something, you have to finish it. Like uh, I think it's fine to leave in the middle if you want to. And that was like when I was dropping out, this is something that circled back to me like somebody else in my program had said uh, was like criticizing me to somebody else. Um, And she was like, well, I think it's like, she was saying that it was like a weak decision and her whole thing was like, I'm not a quitter, you know, like you start something, you gotta finish it. I don't see it that way at all. I think that like if you're not happy with what you're doing and it's not working for you, then of course you should leave. Yeah. Like, there's no, um, there's no reason to make yourself to force yourself to pursue a career path or a relationship or anything that yeah. uh, isn't working yeah, and for I you. Think yeah,
1: that's something that again, people may think is a weak sign of weakness in the millennial generation, but that's a very millennial thing to do, and I think it is so um, empowering. And yeah. that's really special that you, you know, it's okay to say no and it's okay to step away. And as long as that choice resonates with you, it doesn't really matter if it resonates with anyone else. Right. So and yeah. that's paraphrasing Michelle Obama, BT dubs. Yeah. Exactly. So. <laughs> yeah. And I think <laughs> a lot of people
2: that I've talked to who have also dropped out of programs describe feeling like failures for leaving. Um, I did feel like a failure as well, but not for that same reason. Like, I didn't feel like a failure because I left my uh, PhD program. I felt like a failure because I was like, shoot, I am, like, running up on 30, and I still don't know what my career is going to be like mm-hmm. you know I felt like, like all this time pressure and I felt yeah. like I was running out of options like those were the things that were stressing me out not so much the idea that I would like yeah. left this particular program but I think like something that I learned that you were saying too is that like it's not like I think that we buy into this idea that you have to figure out things in your career by a certain time or it's too late mm-hmm. and I don't think that's true yeah. I think that people make career switches and changes all the time yeah,
0: yeah. for sure uh, Maddie, what questions do you have for our well, esteemed guests? I wanted to talk a little bit about your work that I read on Quartz while I was committing time theft at work. Um, Don't the, feel guilty! <laughs> no! Um, the first one that I wanted to talk about, because we've talked about this in past episodes, mm-hmm. um, the article that you wrote about Taylor Swift's oh friendships, friends, yeah, her Friendships yeah. and the concept of a squad. I was hoping in your own words maybe you could paraphrase right. kind of the point you were making for the people that haven't read the article. Sure, yeah.
2: And feel free to chime in because this was, like, yeah. I wrote it last year, so um, I love it. it's, I a, it's so a little fuzzy. But, fascinating. But basically, like, I think that what that article was about was it was after her big 4th of July party last year, mm-hmm. um... And you know, I think she didn't have one this year, which is kind of sad because I was looking forward to <laughs> hate hate scrolling through her Instagram. Um, I
1: Taylor Swift is up to something big.
2: Oh, interesting. Through the grapevine. Yeah, so we'll see. We'll all see. right, I keep have our eyes nice peeled. Yeah. So. <laughs> um, but so basically, uh, she had had this big party, and there were all these very beautiful photos of her and her friends. Uh, you know, on uh, like sitting on beach chairs and. Clowning around in the ocean, um, and the article is sort of about the way that Taylor Swad seems to be weaponizing her female friendship, and in, uh, in this way, like I think that like a, a line that I wrote in there is like uh, she sees weapons, but like what what is she fighting for? It's very unclear. Yeah, like, what is the
0: end goal? Like what is
2: she? Yeah, yeah. And it feels very to me like her understanding of fe- or not even her her performance of female friendship, the the performance of female friendship that she does on social media.
1: Well, and then she doesn't. Bad blood, I yeah, mean, and, I and that she it does in Bad Blood. You right, wrote about that like, in your
2: article. So interesting. Yeah, as well.
1: yeah. Uh, of course, this is the one article I didn't read today. So, <laughs> so
2: interesting. But uh, but yeah, uh, the performance of friendship that she does seems to be very much about like um about friend like having friends is power to Taylor Swift. Like this is the way that she asserts her status in the world is like by being like, look at all my conventionally beautiful, also famous friends mm-hmm. and how great we are. Together, um, and that feels to me very much like not what friendship is about. Like it's mm-hmm. not supposed to be about like your friends making you look good. That feels like a very like high school mean girl's understanding of what friendship is supposed to be. Yeah,
0: yeah. I thought I just thought it was very, very well written, and we had talked about in other, other episodes like the even the vernacular of calling something a squad. Like you talked yeah. about it in a militarized. Yeah. Fashion, we were talking about how the term tribe is a little problematic, how groups yeah. of women call themselves tribes. Yeah. So I was hoping you could touch a little bit upon that though. I I just thought the whole the whole thing was fascinating. Yeah. Taylor Swift is like I have many feelings
2: right. on her, good and bad.
0: <laughs> yeah,
2: and like a part of me also like likes this about Taylor Swift and that like I don't I think it's kind of cool, even, that, like, that the sign of your power and status as a woman would be your friendships with other women, as opposed to, like, you Getting know... Putting other women down.
1: Which,
2: yeah, as opposed to putting women, yeah. da- other women down, as opposed to, like, who you're dating. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I think that in those ways, it's actually... It's cool. Um, but I think that, yeah, exactly, like, the idea of, like, a tribe or a squad or anything where... Um, the perimeters are very clearly defined and and limited and exclusionary. Yeah. Where it gets is where it gets like squicky. And you also to me. talked
0: about in the article how all of Taylor Swift's friends are conveniently beautiful people. Yeah, even someone like Lena Dunham, who like you know the the fact that people think that Lena Dunham is like a dumpy looking person is beyond me because she's not. Yeah, no, like, she's very attractive. She's yeah. very attractive <laughs> by like. All stretches of the word, so that I could go on and on about that. So, even someone like Lena Dunham, who's not like a supermodel, she's still conventionally attractive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, yeah.
2: Exactly. And I think that that gets again into the idea of like the problem isn't that Taylor Swift has a group of female friends that she loves and wants to do things with and take pictures with. Like, that's great. Everybody do that. I think that there's like no downside there. But it's this idea that like, Um, your friends have to look a certain way and exude a certain kind of aura in order to be worthy of appearing in your Instagram feed. Yeah,
1: do we think just for purposes of speculation Mm -hmm. that Taylor Swift is friends with these women just because they happen to be in her social circle given who she is, or does she very deliberately curate this group of people? And this is what I think is really interesting about Taylor Swift because her whole persona is like, I'm very candid, but she doesn't do anything that she doesn't have a reason for,
0: and it's Right. it's obvious. So it's and like... especially photos, like, there's all yeah. sorts of her, I don't know if you've read about this, Sarah, but, like, she has, she's very big into making sure non-station photos of her are not on the internet. Yeah. And she has, mm-hmm. you know, Taylor Swift's personal fr- that, photographer, think, well, we're not yeah. going to say his name, but I, yeah. Taylor uh, Swift has a personal photographer. Uh-huh.
1: Just, and, that does just as just as candidates, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, he's lovely. I've met him. Yeah. Times,
2: so very interesting. Um, yeah. 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 I mean, yeah. I don't know. I mean, like, I totally buy that she knows a disproportionate number of beautiful people because she is a singer, and of course, she meets mm-hmm. supermodels and actresses and people who are going to yeah. be conventionally attractive because you know they're all in the same industry. Um, so, yeah, I guess that's not, I don't necessarily think that she's like curating them and excluding people who don't look like that because I believe that sort of like this is who's in her circle but I don't think that that diminishes like the sort of problematic effects of scrolling through an Instagram feed that looks like that and thinking about how just like the message that it sends to especially like teenagers about the kinds of friendships that are valuable and worth aspiring
1: to. Yeah, I think that that's really interesting. I mean I've talked recently with the young teen who's very close to my heart and I know she has a lot of issues and I don't even think she can really at 14 kind of vocalize what that means but it must be hard to you know see all of that and then feel like you have to even if you know Ms. Swift is just with those people because they happen to be those people that are around her and she does have genuine friendships with them but again it's the way that it looks and then when you're a 14 year old girl And you're like, well, I better be friends with the popular girls because they look a certain way yeah. as opposed to... And I think that's really interesting, you know, when you dig into some of those supermodels, et cetera, is they all feel like dorky losers. Like, that's how they talk about themselves, because their own self-esteem is so diminished from working in that industry.
0: But do you think think that that's a little bit them trying to be relatable? Because that's the criticism of Taylor Swift, too, is that she's like, I'm a big dork. But she doesn't, she she says that to be relatable. Do you think that the supermodels are saying it to be relatable, or do you think it's because they have low self-esteem? I think my big
1: life lesson that I've kind of learned in the last, like, year is that I meet all these women and men and, and people who I think are just, like, so cool, and then they're like, I was a loser, or I am a loser. That's so true. I think everyone thinks they're a loser, to some extent. Like, if you yeah, meet totally. someone who actually thinks that they're God's gift to the earth, then they're a horrible person, and you're not going to to be friends with them. Yeah,
2: so. and especially as Shay was saying about like the way that indi- the the modeling industry treats women. Like, I totally buy that they also feel bad about themselves because, you know, I think that like you'll go to you'll go to one photo shoot and be told that you're too fat, and then you'll go to another one and be told that you're too skinny. And you know, like I think I totally buy that you would internalize all kinds of criticisms. I think it's a really brutal industry yeah. to be At in. Least.
1: Like, if you think about. Even someone like Taylor Swift, who's again conventionally pretty, she's pretty they put a lot of time and effort into making her look like that because she's a tall, skinny girl with like really knobby like if she was in your high school class you'd probably be like, No, oh, she's okay. You know? Yeah. So, I agree with that. I anyway. Think that's valid. So, cool. Um Can I tack on to that? Well, I think, Sarah, you've written several times about friendship in ways that are really interesting and beautiful, and you wrote an article, which I was, like, trying to find this morning when I was at the dog park. I was, like, on Facebook being, like, where is this (laughs) article? And I couldn't find it, but about making friends when you're in your 30s. Oh, yes, the Golden
2: Retriever article. Yes. yeah. I
1: just, this, it resonated with me so strongly um, as someone who is, you know, tends to put myself in situations with new people a lot, and like to uproot my life and go somewhere new and yeah um,
2: i feel I like you're so, so good fascinated. at making friends i want mean, to oh. hear about your strategy <laughs> yeah i was gonna say <laughs> she has no
1: problem making. yeah friends. <laughs> But, I mean, I think it's a lot about what... I mean, maybe talk about a little bit what you said in that article. Okay, yeah, but then you then say what you're... Yes, yes. I will tell you my <laughs> strategy.
2: Um, so, basically, this article, um, the, the headline for anybody who wants to try to find it is uh, want to make new friends as an adult, yeah. be like a golden retriever. We'll tweet retriever. all these out and yeah. put them on the
0: yeah. website and
2: stuff so people can find them, too. Yeah. Um, but, so, basically, that article is about how, um, you know... I sort of like a, when I became an adult, and um, especially when I was in my thirties. And I, I moved to New York when I was thirty, um, and I had some friends who were already here, but a lot of them had moved away. So I was somewhat starting from scratch, um, and. I felt very uh, awkward a lot of the time because I realized that I was just being too self-conscious about how I was coming off to other people, and that would make the interactions very bad because like I wouldn't really be listening to what they were saying. I would be sort of like worrying about how they're perceiving me. So I made a decision that instead of doing that, I would uh you know kind of like turn off my inner monitor and be like a golden retriever because a golden retriever doesn't feel self-conscious about wanting to be friends with people. A golden retriever just kind of like runs up to them and is enthusiastic and happy and is like Hi, hello. I'm glad to see you. And then, uh, if the person says no, this is actually gold, not all golden retrievers do this, but this is like my human human interpretation of golden yeah. Retrieving. If the person says no, you don't push it. You just sort of like say like okay, but you don't internalize it. You don't think that means that like you suck. Now you just kind of like uh, go talk to somebody else, and hopefully like that one will go well. So it's sort of like um, a very unselfconscious, optimistic way of. Meeting people and trying to befriend them um, is basically like the strategy that I landed on that uh, has been really good for me. What about what also. do you do, Shay? Well, yeah, I,
1: mean, I, I think the thing that I should <laughs> be
0: friends with <laughs> random youths
1: is honestly very true. All of my friends are 23, no, that's not true. Um, but I think it is hard once you're in your 30s, particularly as people are starting their own family. Yeah, um, and I, I don't know, I, and I think you talk about this as well. It's you. People, when you show interest in them, very rarely are going to rebuff you. Like, yeah. Like, I, I don't think I've ever met someone where if I kind of come to them with an open heart, that they're like, ew. Yeah. And people just respond to that. And it doesn't have to be really, um, I don't know, it can be very subtle, I guess. It doesn't have to be. But it's just about, I mean, it sounds so lame, but like, putting yourself out there. Um, but that being said, when I feel like when I meet someone, that I, you know, another woman that I really want to be friends with, it's almost like dating somebody, because I get anxious about it, and I'm like, oh, was I cool? Did I say, like, the wrong thing? Yeah. More anxious than I get about when I go up with, like, dumb boys, because if I'm, like, going on a date with somebody, I can just be like, okay, maybe I said something dumb, but I had a really good bra on, so I know he's going to call me. Right, yeah. But when you go out, you know, when you're trying to cultivate a friendship, sometimes it can be really scary, especially as you get older and you feel like, okay, there's so many more claims on everyone's time. Right. Um, but ultimately, I think, especially in a city like New York, everybody is a little bit lonely, so yeah. if you come to someone and you say, and you just don't make the assumption that they don't have room for you, Yeah. you know? So, yeah. um, and I
2: I think that's totally true. Yeah. Like, I think I think in general, obviously there are exceptions, but, like, I think that you can really be friends with whoever you want mm-hmm. because, like, yeah. if you like a person, probably that's because you have something in common with them, whether that's, like, a common interest or just, like, a common way of seeing mm-hmm. the world. Yeah. And they will probably like you back because you already like them to begin with. Then, yeah. like, it's just all about being sort of, like, friendly and, and open.
1: Yeah. yeah. And I also think, like, realizing and I have a whole very much larger theory about this that I won't go into right now, but, like, recognizing that friendship can be very fluid and that it's something... And that you can't be friends with everybody, but you should still be putting those feelers out there because as long as you... Again, it's not about being manip- manipulative or, I don't know, whatever, but as long as you are open and you keep kind of keep the feelers out for people, even if it's someone that you met two or three years ago. Yeah. You know, like, sorry, I feel like with you, I'm always like... I wish I were better about calling Sarah and like getting together because I think you're so lovely. I think you're so you cool. know, yeah.
2: But I think we know that about each but other. We know that about each yeah. other, and I
1: always feel like okay, like even if I'm not in New York, like I know that when I'm in the city, I can always be like, okay, Sarah, like let's get a drink. Yeah, and, and I will you know, absolutely and not want to. Yeah, feel like that's going to be weird. So yeah, it's just knowing that I think
0: most people feel like that.
2: Totally. You know? Yeah, most people so. are delighted if you call them and want to have a drink exactly. or a coffee or yeah, exactly.
0: So Love you. Mentioned that in an article about not feeling guilty about not responding to emails. Yes, yeah. And you mentioned was. that you called a friend that was in town and you knew you were being slow about responding to the text message, but then oh, you called he, him and you were able to make plans.
2: Yeah, yeah or he called me actually, yeah, but yeah. Pretty immediately. So, um, yeah.
0: yeah, yeah. So this was sort of. Um, Going back to or not. Our whole theme of this episode, not feeling guilty about yeah, exactly. things So, and I'm also, like, I,
2: I'm interested to hear what both of you guys think about, like, responding to emails and texts and stuff. So,
0: yeah.
2: um, I have become markedly worth, like, I had a reputation among my friends.
0: too. We talked about that uh, oh, in yeah. last week's episode. Like, millennial, like, email etiquette and yes. things yeah, like that. Yeah, it's so. tricky. Yeah
2: so i used to i used to be known as somebody who was really good at keeping in touch and now I think i am actively bad um, and <laughs> for me, that is all about um the reality of my job where like uh, i have um I get a lot of emails especially because I work with outside writers in particular mm-hmm. um, like my inbox is constantly full I'm mm-hmm. always behind, I'm always trying to stay on top of things. Um, we also have like a really active Slack um, so like and my coworkers are like slacking me throughout the day. Can so, you say what yeah. Slack
1: is because I, I didn't know what it was until last week when another friend oh. showed me because I worked in a small company. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So
2: Slack is a is a work messaging platform sort of similar to like AOL or Gchat but specifically designed for work yeah. um, although some people have it for other reasons Hannah too. was
0: looking at it when we were interviewing oh, her yeah. I she was like was scrolling for her for was. Yeah. yeah
2: yeah so um so because of my job I'm I'm very much like talking to a lot of people throughout the day and again because I have the kind of the job the kind of job that doesn't necessarily end at five or six that also bleeds over into all kinds of hours yeah. as well Um and uh, so the reality has just been for me that I have gotten a lot worse at responding to texts um, and responding to phone calls in a timely manner. Um, and so this this article that I wrote was just sort of about like being like you know what I'm never going to get to inbox zero. Realistically, I'm not going to get to inbox 50. I don't think like uh, and it's just about sort of like accepting that. Um, When I I write to people now, because I understand how it is to be, like, inundated with so much communication all the time, I never take it personally um, if they don't write back to me. I assume that it's because, like, I never assume that it's because they don't want to talk to me now, because, like, I know that that's my mindset. Like, uh, I assume that it's because they forgot, or, like, they were just too busy and they didn't respond. So, like, you know, you follow up. Um, Obviously, like, don't bug people too much, but, like, it's fine to send, like, a a reminder to be like, hey, just checking in, I thought maybe, like, uh, you might have missed this email. Um, And also, I think, like, just trying alternate modes of communication is something else that I talk Mm -hmm. about in the article. Like, sometimes if somebody's not responding to one thing, it may be because they have, like... So, for me, emails are particularly hard for me to respond to because that's the thing that I have the most of. So, a better way to get in touch with me generally is, like, via text or... For my friends, is, like, via text or email. So, um, what happened in this example that I gave was that, like, my friend... I think he had been texting me, actually. um, But... Uh, I wasn't responding that was just like I wanted to see him I was just busy and like you know not on top of things but he just uh he was out with our other friend and he just called me and was like hey do you want to get a drink I'm in town tonight like let's go here and I was like amazing yes I absolutely do it was like I definitely wanted to see them it was just all about like the catching me at the right time and also trying a different mode of communication that was less overwhelming to me at that particular point which happened to be I will share yeah
0: (laughs) personal story about this I was yeah. on vacation from for, from work oh for about a week mm-hmm. and I get approximately like 200 emails a day oh my gosh between like emails that are sent directly to me at work yeah and um just I'm on a bunch of like distributions so yeah it'll be like a bunch of emails And so I came back from work and I had like 1500 emails. Oh
2: my god. What did you do? In my
0: work email. I put them all in a folder. Yeah. Like I had been gone from work for a week. So I put them all in a folder. I like briefly searched because you can search like an outlook for ones that are to a distribution and ones where people specifically addressed you. So I briefly searched for the ones that addressed me if they didn't like if it didn't seem urgent. I just put them all in a folder. Right. And then I assumed if someone really needs an answer from me, if they couldn't get in touch with a colleague while I was out of the office, or, you know, whatever, they'll either email again, or they'll call me, or they'll walk over to my desk, and, like, that did happen, like, I got several phone calls that next week, I got follow-up emails from people, but it was maybe, like, a handful, maybe a dozen total, as opposed to spending the time to go through and respond to 1,500 emails, figuring out which ones my coworkers had already gotten in touch with people about... Blood glow. Yeah, and I didn't feel bad about it, and it was fine.
2: Yeah. So, what about I Shay, you? <laughs> you said that you would get like anxiety yeah, from so adopting this, this tactic. This is kind yeah. of like
1: my own. I am the anomaly here. I'm definitely the outlier. Um, I can't, like, if that little red bubble says anything on it. I like actually too. Well, somehow my new phone magically had a setting where the little red bubble doesn't show up, which is very good. Um, but I so my work email, I try to always have less than 10 Mm -hmm. uh, emails in my inbox and my personal email. I always have less than 50 Mm -hmm. and I kind of use my email as my to-do list. So it's like, okay, this is in there. That means it's like important or I have to respond to it. Or it's like, even sometimes I'll save like the circular from J crew because I know I want to like buy those shoes. So it just like reminds me to do it. But, um, if, like, I, it's like, people who have 1,500 emails in their inbox that just sit there, like, to me, that sounds
0: like a horrible way to live, but no judgment to both of you.
1: <laughs> I, I no, like, I totally... Yeah. When I'm gone even, for
0: a week, yeah. I have that many emails, yeah. but on yeah. the day-to-day, like, I'm constantly going through my emails and putting them, sorting them into folders and responding to them, so yeah. I don't just let them... For yes. all my coworkers that are listening, like, I don't just not respond to my emails.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's hard, because I feel like... You know, we're also expected to respond so quickly to everything, and people start to get a little, you know, offended if you don't respond right away. I mean, right. You know, this is something that my boss and I just talked talk about at work. Like, we were so good at responding to every client inquiry and everything, every vendor inquiry and getting payments out right away. I mean, within hours, that people were kind of shocked. And, like, we <laughs> sat down and were like, oh, you know, if we let 24 hours go by, it's not the end of the world. And yeah. I think that was a big, like, revolution.
0: Sarah, you talk about that in your article. Like, people yeah. are less offended and worried by this behavior than you would normally expect
2: yeah yeah and I also think like if I like I think that it would be great if we were even more relaxed like I don't understand necessarily like obviously there are some things that do require a very prompt response and we should all be trying to respond but like why is it crazy to wait a week to respond to an email like you know if it's not urgent then that I think that's fine I, I wish that like culturally collectively we could all sort of just like take a deep breath and be like not everybody needs to get back to us instantaneously. And that's, yeah. yeah,
1: I had this. You know, I feel like I'm very lucky. It runs everywhere, and I've yeah. been able to maintain all these relationships. But I, particularly over the last year, because I did have a bit of a period where I was like not responding to anybody. Like I had a lot of people would call. I mean, I would of course delete their voicemails right away because I get anxious about that. But like, I just owed so many people a phone call or an email or a text message, and it really kind of shook I mean and there's certain people that didn't hear me say this and get very offended, but I'm gonna say it anyway. Like my friends that I not that like shook out through the rough time, but like the ones that I really don't have to worry about didn't care. Yeah. It didn't it wasn't detrimental to our friendship
0: that I was like, you know what,
1: for the next six months, I'm not gonna call you back. Right. You guys were even
0: just discussing that in the previous thing. You guys were both like we know that about each other. That exactly, yeah. We don't need to hang out all the time. We don't need to talk every day to know that there's yeah. a friendship there. Yeah, yeah
2: that exactly. we like really like each other, yeah. and that like a, you know a missed call is not going to generate like this yeah. weird like you know like a amount of like a ill will or any you know exactly. like yeah.
1: And I also think it's really helpful. Like one of my best friends from college, um, a couple years ago, she said to me like It is really important to me that you return my phone calls." And because she said that, I always... And you're like,
0: now I never want to call you ever no, again. But think, <laughs> That's but how I would like, respond. I
1: make a point, like, with other people I know, oh, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Gonna- but like for her, like she said that to me, and I was like, okay, you know what? Thank you, because then I know that I need to prioritize that.
2: Right. It's also about yeah. different friendship expectations. Exactly. Yeah. So like exactly. my my uh, one of my best friends from grad school, we actually text almost every day, mm-hmm. um, which I actually think like when you're in that frequent of communication with people, it's just easier too because like I know I don't have to like say a lot of things. It's and not she's a already
0: come up and whenever you end up talking to like I have some friends that I talk to like once a month and it's like you end up doing a huge catch up.
2: Yeah, yeah. yeah. And a lot of the time like our texts like during the day might just be like L O L and a link to like an article that we thought was funny. But like so that's like really easy to respond to. Mm -hmm. Yeah for sure. Um,
0: Interesting. Uh, Yeah, note taker over here. Well, I was thinking, since we're about to wrap up with our time here, if we wanted to do a submission card. Oh, yes. So for our listeners that are just joining us and for Sarah, we had a launch party a few weeks ago, and in the spirit of trying to make this more of a crowdsourced endeavor and not just Shay and I talking at each other... And to encourage people to email us and tweet at us and all that stuff, we had an actual box with cards that we were hoping people could put millennial moments or, you know, hot topics, campfire topics for us. So, we have a, some cards, so I was hoping our guests could pick one oh, that's at so random.
2: Okay. Then, then what's going to happen?
0: And then you read oh, it and we discuss. Yes. Okay. <clears> okay. <throat> I don't know
2: how to afford an apartment... Without being complicit in gentrification. Oh, that's a great Ooh, question. That's yeah. a yeah, that's Ooh, a great top topic.
1: Sometimes these kids are just really on top of it. Yeah. Um I was the oldest person in our launch party by like a thousand years.
0: <laughs> well, I will say Yeah. There were a bunch of people to that defend were born myself, in nineteen ninety nine. I invited about ninety percent of the people there and Shay invited about ten percent. Yeah, but so. none of my people
1: came because you're all
0: awful. No, I'm kidding public shaming. Wow. No. Gentrification. This is a big one, because I'm from just outside Detroit, so I have this conversation with people a lot about Detroit and New York. And I always kind of, kind of struggle with it, and you guys can maybe help me understand or tell me if you guys disagree, but my... I understand why from an intellectual perspective, gentrification is bad. Right? Like, culturally and economically why it's not a good thing and why it's kind of just whitewashing culture is not good and displacing people that have lived in communities for generations is bad. But my problem with the debate is I don't know what the solution is other than, you know, keeping rents artificially low from a market perspective Mm -hmm. or telling certain groups of people this is this type of neighborhood, and it's for, I don't want to use the word indigenous, lack of a better phrase, this is for people who have lived in this neighborhood for generations and you're not allowed to move in, Mm -hmm. which seems weird and bad to me, like, I wouldn't want that. Right. I just don't know what the solution is, and to me, if it's, like, if there's no solution and we're just going to be, like, well, people that want to move into this neighborhood who don't look like the people that have lived here for generations... Mm that's necessarily bad I don't think I subscribe to that and for our listeners question who said I don't know how to afford an apartment I'm assuming in New York without being complicit in gentrification that is a problem and I don't think our listener who submitted that should feel bad about that because it's like yeah especially young people in the city it's hard to afford to live here Mm -hmm. and should you feel bad about moving to a neighborhood where you're maybe one of the only white people and you're starting to gentrify the neighborhood. I don't think you should feel bad about that. I,
2: mm-hmm. uh, no, I think yeah. so. I think to me, like, it's about first understanding that gentrification, I think, um, is a systemic issue. It's not an individual issue. It's some like right. similarly to like I think
0: that is an important. You know, distinction we
2: make... uh, we live in a capitalistic society, and you can be anti-capitalist, but you're still going to have to function within a capitalistic society mm-hmm. because you are here. Um, so. In terms of gentrification, what I think that means is that I think it's a really important issue and like a, a great question, and I don't think that I necessarily know the answer either. But like my my first thought about that is that if you're in a position where you are a white privileged person and the apartment that you can afford is in a neighborhood that has historically been primarily occupied by people of color, potentially low income people. Um, I think that your responsibility there shouldn't it's not that you necessarily have to say like, you know, I will I will instead leave New York rather than moving to this neighborhood. Um I think that really what your responsibility there is to try to address the systemic issues that will push people out. So maybe you move into your, a permit that you're splitting with three roommates and, and you're paying $600 a month and that's how you can afford your magazine internship or whatever. But then at the same time, what I would say that you should be doing is you know, going to community meetings in your neighborhood where you are helping to figure out how to legislate for more affordable housing so that more people will be able to get to stay. I think you should be... Um, Volunteering in your neighborhood um, and getting to know the people who are around you, I think you should join a community garden. You know, like, not all of these things simultaneously, necessarily. Mm-hmm. Well, but I think, like, your, your yeah. responsibility is to become a part of your community and to contribute actively to it, to get to know the other people who are there. And I think that that's how you can start addressing the broader issue that you're a part of. What were you going to say, say? say Yeah.
1: Also, just spend your money in the neighborhood. Yeah. And, because you... At the end of the day, we do, like you said, we do live in a capitalistic society, and that is what is going to talk. So if you have a choice between, like, let's say you want to have fried chicken for dinner, and you can pick up, and you're coming from your internship in Midtown, and you can pick up from the fancy fried chicken shop downstairs from your office, or you can get it at the corner shop in your neighborhood. Tastes exactly the same get it from the corner shop in your neighborhood
2: yeah um supporting local
0: businesses huge yeah
1: food at the local grocery store don't go to whole foods in union square yeah truck your stuff home because also that's annoying for you yeah you know so there are ways to yeah just spend your money locally those are all delightful ideas that i had not heard of but i also think uh just add one more thing to the gentrification conversation and i've just been thinking about this a lot because i recently visited the tenement museum for the first time
0: Oh, I'm might. too claustrophobic to go. I'm oh, like it's the so worst good. person. Have you been, Sarah? No, I oh, haven't. Been so either. so good. No. Don't go
1: in the summer. Is it claustrophobic? If I'm claustrophobic, is it bad? No, you'll be fine. fine. Okay. It's like it's basically the same layout as like our old apartment. Oh. So, great, excellent. Um, but I think we forget, particularly in a city in New York, that changes so rapidly that. Gentrification is a thing that happens, but it's there's this huge fluidity that goes on constantly. So, when you're drinking your twenty five dollar cocktail on the Lower East Side, not a hundred years ago, that was low income housing where people were, you know, living in these, you know, basically squalor and all of these awful conditions and blah blah blah. I'm not saying that that's what's going on in these neighborhoods now, but you know, then that was gentrified and it changed and it became a place where you know then middle income people could afford and then and now it's a place where you have a $25 cocktail and then it may in 50 years look totally different and that I think you just have to recognize that there is this ebb and flow and it doesn't mean again if you can be present in your community living there doesn't mean that you're by definition degrading the culture of the people of color or the low-income people that live there um who knows what it's going to look? Just like people who now live on the Lower East Side are not disrespecting the history of the Irish and mm-hmm. the Italians and the Chinese people
2: right live there. Although I you know? do you think, to be fair, like I think that it's more rare for a neighborhood to under like the big issue right is that like. Um, you know, the the richer, more privileged people move into a place and push out the people who are poor and can't afford it. Yeah. But it's more rare for the neighborhood to then go back and for people who are lower income to be able to afford that neighborhood I think again. it depends on the yeah. time
0: period you're talking about, too. Right? Because it's, like, over... Are we talking about the span of, like, a generation? Mm-hmm. Then, like, definitely I agree with you. Like, a neighborhood that gets gentrified now is not going to be...
2: It won't open up, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. open up again. Yeah, it's not going to open up again by the
0: time our grandkids come around. But if you talk about, you know, a hundred years from now, two hundred mm-hmm. years from now, I know that it might be a little esoteric to talk about in that form, but I think going back to what Shay was saying, where it's all in an ebb and flow, look at Europe, like places that have been occupied for thousands of years, like a thousand years ago when the neighborhood became for rich people, now it might be, yeah, you know... Mm-hmm not that way anymore so I think it is if you look at it from a historical perspective I think
2: mm-hmm. in the it really does big change. picture yeah, yeah.
0: but in, in the immediate picture I think just
2: like being a part of a your problem. neighborhood is the biggest thing and I think that it's so yeah I think that's really like, good
0: advice especially yeah. for young people I feel like yeah don't have a tendency to really engage with their communities yeah. as much yeah
2: and it's like you'll be happier like I'm so much happier in my neighborhood because I like know people there because I volunteered yeah. there basically
0: yeah and yeah. I think that
1: You know, a lot of people, particularly if you're, let's say, a young white woman Mm -hmm. living in a neighborhood, you may be afraid to do that. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, don't be afraid. Like, nothing's going to happen. I mean, if you live on a street where there... I I don't know. I just, like, when I lived in Cleveland, I lived on a street corner where there were regularly, like, you know, robbings and Hmm.
0: carjackings. Well, it's like if you're not... If you wouldn't be comfortable talking to a neighbor, why would you move into the neighborhood? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It's like, if you're that afraid and you're that uncomfortable with it, then... Either you feel unsafe, and maybe rightfully so. If it's really unsafe, you probably shouldn't be living there. If you can afford not to live there, and be if you're that afraid, then you need to do some self-search of why yeah. you're so afraid, either social anxiety-wise, why you're so afraid to talk to people, or do you have some sort of preconceived bias against the people in your neighborhood, both of which should be addressed. Awesome.
1: So... I realized we probably should have done our 20 questions with Sarah earlier. Should we still do it? Or do we have more topics that we want to discuss?
0: No, I think we should do our questions.
1: Okay, so we've been trying to do... And once again, I said I was going to have a concrete list that (laughs) didn't happen. Keeping Um, people on their toes. Keeping people on their toes. So a list of questions. Some of them general kind of place where you are in the millennial sphere and just so our listeners can feel like they know you. Um, so again this is Sarah. She was born in 1983 so she's currently 34. Four. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, favorite childhood book?
2: Uh, Anne of Green Gables.
1: Me too! <gasps> favorite book now?
2: I learned all about it from you. <gasps> yes! Yeah. Yeah,
1: I I subjected Sarah to like a 20 minute lecture on... It was great. About Montgomery. Yeah. Um, favorite book now?
2: Uh... The one that's springing to mind right now is Americana. Oh,
1: excellent. Um, favorite movie?
2: Back to the Future. Mm.
1: Ooh, good one. Uh, favorite childhood snack?
2: Mm, pudding.
1: Oh, I like, <laughs> like a, a cup?
2: like like a put it, like a butterscotch pudding cup. Oh, see, so really yeah. Think. Just, yeah.
1: Um, your favorite year in elementary school? Third grade. Third grade, I love it. Third grade was tough for me. Um, and then sometimes we ask some more personal questions. So, what age did you receive your first kiss?
2: Sixteen.
1: Sixteen. Are you uh, single, married? Currently single. Currently single. Um, let's see. Those were my two personal questions. <laughs> I like that. Awesome. Oh, um that's a good place to Yeah, that's a good that's place good to, to Sarah, you. thank you so thank much you guys, for joining us. Thank you, guys. You were great. Us. Yay. And um, again, everyone at camp underscore adulthood on the Insta and the Twitter. Maddie and really wants us to get more Twitter followers.
0: Yeah, we're up to 13 Twitter followers. Woo! <laughs> we had 11 last week, so Great two sw- people listened. <laughs> one person at a time. That's all it takes. That's all it takes. Soon we're
1: going to be rivaling Donald Trump. Oh, um, God. Also, everyone, we're currently setting up, what's it called? A Patreon. A Patreon. <laughs> Patreon. So, um... Search it on Patreon, and you may get a special prize. Mm-hmm. So, later. And also remember, if you share uh, the podcast with your friends, coworkers, family, and let us know about it, you may win a special prize. Uh, no one told me that they shared this week, so no prizes this week, but maybe next week.
0: Yeah. Awesome. All right. All right. Thank, All right.
1: Thank you, Sarah. Bye.